Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. Uh, as we continue in worship, let's turn our attention to the book of Colossians. Starting in chapter 2, verse 6. Um, as we look at the book of Colossians in a similar fashion to how uh, Paul is focused on Jesus in the book of Ephesians, he has a similar emphasis in the book of Colossians in, in this letter that he's writing to the church there. Um, he's writing to, to recenter the Christians on Jesus uh, because there had been some false teachings. Um, some uh, worldly philosophies, so to speak, that had made their way into the church. And the Colossians were being swayed from faith in, in the one true faith, in faith in Jesus. And they've been swayed to these false teachings, these things that, that corrupted the person of Christ and what he did and what he promises in the gospel. And we don't know what exactly those false teachings were, but they were severe enough that Paul is writing very emphatically to remind the the, the Colossians, who Jesus is, what he's done for them, and what difference that makes in their lives. And, and so the section we're in this morning is really kind of the turning point of this whole letter. Paul is getting to the point, he's, he's in the previous chapter, he's extolled the supremacy of Christ, all the, the realities, glorious realities of who Jesus is. He's talked, t- touched on the redemption, the reconciliation that Christ has bought with his blood and then now he's, he's um, emphasizing how that works out for us in our lives. And so with that said, let's turn our attention to verse 6 in chapter 2. Uh, give heed to the word of God. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ." having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us. Lord, thank you that you reveal yourself to us, that you reveal Jesus to us. Lord, thank you that you save us. And Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds uh, to you this morning, that you transform us by your spirit through your word. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, the title of this sermon you'll see in your bulletin is Faith in the Power of God. That comes from verse 8 there in this passage. Not verse 8. What am I saying? Verse 12. Um, 
And really, I think that's the verse that this, this passage really hinges on. This is what Paul is really emphasizing, is that if we have faith in the power of God, then all these other things that, that, that he is speaking of, these things are ours. And he's emphasizing these things because our faith so quickly gets twisted. Um, we so quickly uh, get diverted in our thinking and in our vision. We, our eyes go from Jesus to all sorts of other things in our lives. Maybe it's possessions, relationships, struggles, circumstances, and, and suddenly we feel like we need to save ourselves. We suddenly feel like we need to, to bear everything up with our own uh, intellect, with our own cunning, with our own ability to manipulate situations. But that burden is unbearable for us because you and I have limited power. You and I can't do all that we need to do to make it out of this thing alive, so to speak. But the reason that we think that we can do that is because we lose sight of the power of God. We underestimate the power of God. And as, as uh, humans, we, <laughs> we, we underestimate the power of pretty much everything in our lives. Like when we open a, a new tub of ice cream and we say, oh, I'm just going to get one scoop. Then you add another scoop, and then you're watching a show, and you're like, oh, you know what? I could use another scoop of ice cream. Uh, or suddenly you open a bag of potato chips, and it's half empty immediately. Um, we underestimate, and then the next uh, couple of months, we wonder why our pants are suddenly a little tighter. We underestimate the power of these little things in our lives, um, and we do that in big and small ways. Right? When I was in high school, I was getting ready to, to get my license. I had my learner's permit. My mom and I were driving to Gettysburg to the DMV, and we were going to practice at the, uh, the parallel parking spot that they had there. And we were driving under the, the underpass, where 15 passes over at 116. And right as we got through that, a 17-year-old girl came through with her minivan getting off of 15 and, and pulled out right in front of me and we collided, had an accident. She had just gotten her license. She blew through a stop sign, and, you know, she was frazzled, and my mom had to go to the, to the hospital, and, and all these, you know, the car was totaled. And in that moment, that accident occurred because in some way that young woman underestimated the power of the vehicle she was driving. Right? She underestimated what would happen if she was careless and went through a stop sign. She underestimated what would happen if another car hit her car. Um, and then there were consequences as a result of that. And you and I underestimate the power of God every day because we think that you and I need to save ourselves. We think that we need to grow and be sanctified on our own terms. We think that if we get the right program, if we have the right steps in place, then our sin will no longer be a problem. We'll do everything that we ought to do. We'll have perfect relationships. We won't have any strife or difficulty in our lives. But when we function in that way, we're functioning in our own power and not in the power of God. And Paul is saying, you need to stop looking at yourself. You need to stop looking at other people to provide you the power that you need for this life. But you need to look at Jesus. Look at Christ. And so what is it that Christ gives us? What is it that we receive uh, as a result of God's power? As Romans 1.16, you know, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. 
As a result of the power of God, we can live in Christ. Uh, this first part of this, this uh, passage says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Now, that's an imperative, meaning that it's saying, do this. It's a command. Live in him. Uh, but you and I don't really talk, walk around saying we're going to live in one another. right? I don't walk around and say, oh, I'm going to go live um, in my friend. That's weird, right? <laughs> Makes no sense. Um, so what does it mean? And so these next, this next sentence or clause, Paul explains what that looks like. So you continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now what the English translation doesn't really express very well is, is that these verbs that are listed in verse 7 are all passive verbs. So rooted, built up, strengthened, it's really should be should read having been rooted, having been built up, having been strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. So the only active verb there is overflowing with thankfulness. The other things are passive, meaning that when it says uh, be uh, ha- um, when it says rooted, built up, strengthened, those things have happened to us. Those things are outside of our control. Those things are outside of our power. These things are the gift of God, that in Jesus, we have been rooted in him. He has rooted us in himself. He is building us up in himself. He is strengthening us and and shoring up our faith and growing us in the faith as we're taught. And so our response to this is gratitude. Um, The Dutch Reformed, they're... Catechism is called the Heidelberg Catechism, and kind of the famous way that that's kind of separated and kind of summarized is guilt, grace, gratitude. And that's kind of a good summary for the Christian life, is that um, we start in this state of guilt. We start in this, in this state of, of punishment for our sins. Each of us is born into sin. Uh, all of us fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, we need saving from ourselves. We need the grace of God to cover our sins. We need the grace of God to rescue us from uh, ourselves, to rescue us from thinking that we have the power to save ourselves. And when we receive that grace, the only proper thing that you and I do in that whole mix, the only thing we add to the equation is gratitude. And even that gratitude is spurred on by what Christ has already done for you and I. Because he has rooted us, he has built us up, he has strengthened us. Therefore, we overflow with gratitude and with thankfulness. And as we are rooted, strengthened in Christ, as we overflow with gratitude, Paul encourages us to remain in the truth. In verse 8, he says, see, it, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Um, and I think the reason he says that is because the verse prior is antithetical to how humans think and live. And it's very antithetical to you and I in 21st century American culture. Uh, the, the culture that you and I live in is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, it's get what you can while you can get it. It's shore up uh, your yourself and your family financially. It's... Um, <laughs> You know, focus 
everything in your life towards having a safe, healthy, comfortable life. And all that has to be accomplished through how you maneuver and manipulate your life and how you get, uh, how you go to the right school and you marry the right spouse and you have the right timeline for having kids and, and you make sure you're investing in your Roth IRA and your 401k and that you're investing in real estate or whatever so that when you retire, you have an estate to pass on back to the person, to your uh, children. We have a very self-reliant individualistic perspective. But what Paul is saying is that we can't have that. You and I can't have an individualistic, self-reliant perspective when it comes to our lives. Because if our life is in Christ, if we are in him, that means we have been united with Jesus, which means that there's no separation between you and Jesus if you have faith in him. If you are his and he is yours, then there's no separation. There's no beginning or end to you or Christ. Therefore, you are fundamentally never by yourself. Fundamentally, everything in your life does not occur because you work hard to get it. It's because God blesses you and, and the Lord is at work in your life. And so as we process those first couple of verses, we need to do so not from a position of how our culture thinks, not from a position of how even our family culture thinks, but we need to come at it from the position of what does the Bible say about how our lives should function. And from the Old Testament on, right, we see that God deals with families. He deals with nations. He deals with a people, with a body. He does not deal with individuals alone. Even as he makes his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, I will make you a father of many nations, but not just for Abraham's sake, not just for his family's sake, but that they might then in turn become a blessing to the nations, right? Sometimes we think that, uh, that missionary work and, and sharing the gospel evangelism, that that is unique to the New Testament. But it's baked in to the entire thing. God's plan has always been for the gospel to go out to all the nations, for all the nations to be blessed through Abraham, through Christ, and so as God deals with Abraham and as God deals with Moses, as God deals with the people of Israel, as then God deals with the New Testament church, he's always dealing with a community. All these things are always happening in community. These letters are written to communities, right? And so that's instructing us in something important, that we need each other and that ultimately we need Jesus, <laughs> Right, so that all this is happening, all of our connectivity is because of Christ. So here's something to think about. Why are you in this room this morning? Maybe you've attended Hammer Valley for 25 years. Uh, maybe you've attended churches your whole life. Maybe you've only started going to church the last six months. Whatever it is, when you are in a service like this, there's likely one reason why you're here, and that's because you have a relationship with somebody in this room or had a relationship with somebody that used to be in this room. There was a relationship that drew you to this place, and as faith was born in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you joined everybody else in this room in their union with Christ. Because if all of us are united with Christ, that means that all of us are united to one another. And so as we're united with Christ, we're united in this community of believers that has no separation in an eternal cosmic sense. 
We are all intrinsically connected and, and connected with all believers across the world, across history. And so we must not uh, today in our modern times think that we are individuals solely. Yes, we're individuals, but we're not only individuals. And so Paul, in a similar way, is, is pointing them to not fall prey to deceptive philosophies, to human traditions, to spiritual forces that are seeking to distract them from Christ and what he's doing in the church and in their lives. And this also means that as we recognize the reality of our communal existence, um, we also recognize the reality that um, we also need to make sure that our faith is actually being directed in the correct place. Um, I was thinking about it, uh, how weird church is this week. Um, no offense. But we all get in, in this room together once a week or maybe at other times. And, you know, many of us, there's no family connections. And we have gathered together and we've, we've made our way through, through various circumstances and relationships. And we get here and we get a piece of paper. And on this piece of paper is some songs and things. And we sing those songs together. We stand and we sit and we stand and we sit. And... We hear somebody sit, stand on a platform and speak for 30 minutes, and then we go home and eat lunch and, and enjoy the rest of our Sunday. Um, and the question, when you kind of think about it, it's like, where else does that happen in our daily lives, in our communities? Maybe you're a part of something like the Rotary Club, or maybe you think of other religions that have a similar format uh, in their gatherings. Um, so the question is, to me, is, is what is it that is special about us gathering together with one another? What is it that, that is special about the church gathering in this way? What is different about what we're doing here? And the difference is, is the, the focus of our gathering, the focus of our worship. And as Paul is saying, you know, don't be swayed, don't be distracted by human traditions. He's talking about these false teachings that creep into the church, these uh, these traditions that are, are, have just existed because like, well, I don't know why we do this. We just did that when Aunt Sally was here. And that was 50 years ago. And we're just still doing the same thing. Oh, no, we can't change the color of carpet because that's how it's always been. Or we can't change the, the order of the service because that's how it's always been. Right? Those are simple, silly things that we uh, can fall prey to. But then there's more extravagant things like, oh, well, Jesus wasn't really the son of God. Or Jesus didn't actually die to satisfy the wrath of God for the sake of sinners. Or that miracles didn't actually exist, right? Or that the Bible is really just a collection of, of good sayings and myths, right? So it's important when we come together that we, we re remind ourselves of what is true and what the center of our faith actually is. And it's Christ and him crucified, as Paul says in this, the, the section immediately prior. Uh, he says, he, him we proclaim, Right? He is the mystery. He is the central uh, part of God's revelation. And it is Jesus alone that we proclaim in our worship. It is Jesus alone that we proclaim in our lives. It is Jesus alone who is the object of our faith. He is the center of it. And so to be distracted by philosophies, to be distracted by traditions, to be distracted by anything else is to take our eyes off uh, the only thing that really matters, which is Jesus. So as we think about our lives, as we think about the faith, as we think about living in Christ, 
And Paul is reminding us, remind yourself of what's true. Don't be distracted by these things that, you know, can be important or might have some value to them, but don't make them central. Don't grab these things from out here and make them central to your worship. Keep Jesus there and then hold these other things loosely. What I love about the song we, we sang, uh, Hosanna, this morning is that's a, a inherently political song to some regard. Uh, the philosopher at uh, Calvin College, James K.A. Smith, wrote a book called Awaiting the Kingdom. And in that, he, he makes an argument that the worship of the church is inherently political. And when, he, when we hear that, we bristle a little bit, right? Because <laughs> we wonder, what is, what's Noah saying? Drew's gone. He's going off the reservation. Um, but what James K. Smith argues in that book is that by us proclaiming Hosanna to the lamb who was slain, as we proclaim that Jesus alone is Lord and King, we are saying that, that nothing else rivals him in this world. Nothing else rivals him in our lives. That our allegiance does not belong primarily to any state or country to any other organization, but belongs primarily and solely to Jesus Christ alone. And in our day and age, in the first century, that's a very political term, a political thing to do. Um, and when I say political, what we hear is partisan, right? We think red and blue. But what political means is being engaged in the public life making a statement about where we stand in all the spheres and circles that we run in. We're saying Jesus is our center. Jesus is our king. So we push back against all other ideologies, all other postures, all other human traditions and spiritual forces, and we say it's Jesus. Jesus alone. And so we enter into the public spaces of our lives with that emphasis. We enter into our worship with that emphasis that we worship a risen Savior who has the power to save. And as if we are in Christ, if we are remaining in the truth, if he is actually working these things in us, then what Christ has, we have. Uh, in verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form is to say that Christ is fully God and fully human. That, God, that Christ is who he says he is, that he has the power to save, that he has the power to transform and to forgive all of our sins that we might come to God and be reconciled. And that same fullness, though, not, not in the sense that, you know, you and I are made demigods or made kind of participants in God's nature. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that in a real sense, we are brought into relationship with God so that, that we are in Christ, that there's no separation from him anymore, right? I think that helps us understand Romans 8 a little better, that uh, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why can nothing separate us? Because we are literally in Christ. <laughs> he is our head. We are part of his body. There can be no separation, right? What happens when you uh, separate a body from a head? Well, the body stops working. Uh, <laughs> in this case, the head would keep going because it's Jesus, um, right? There's an intrinsic unity that's been um, 
worked by Christ here. There's no longer a separation. So therefore, we have, uh, in a sense, the fullness of God has become ours because Jesus has become ours. We can look at the God of the universe and um, we can pray to the God of the universe with expectancy. We can hope in him knowing that he is ours. He's not separated by a veil. He's not separated by an, uh, a priest or a prophet, but he is ours. Which is difficult for us to understand, but that's been given to us in Jesus. Not only that, uh, Christ has power over every power and authority, over sin, over death. There is nothing that uh, can overcome Jesus. There's nothing that Jesus says, oh, I have to bow down to you in this instance. Ah, oh, you bested me this time. No. Jesus is king over all. He is authoritative and rules over all things. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with circumcision done by hands of men, but the circumcision done by Christ. Circumcision... Um, is the Old Testament version of baptism. It's the sacrament showing that you've been engrafted into the family of God, you've been brought into the family of God. And to, to, to use this circumcision language, it's talking about um, being brought into God's family. I notice that this does not happen by human realities. It does not happen because a man circumcises, but because God himself circumcises. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. And how does this happen? Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. As we are in Christ, we share in Christ's humiliation. We also share in his exaltation, in his resurrection. Um... We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We do not grieve as those without hope, but we grieve as those with an everlasting hope. We are those who believe in victory over sin and death, but not because you and I do it, not because we work really hard, not because, you know, when Drew baptizes Paul next week, he is not going to be instantly saved, right? He needs faith in the power of God first. But how does that faith happen? Jesus. Because who provides the true spiritual circumcision? It's not Drew, it's not anybody in this church, but it's Jesus who does so. And each of us receives that from Christ. If we are in Christ, we receive that spiritual circumcision. We're brought from death to life. Our sins are no more. And this happens, friends, not when we get our act together again, right? Paul is very emphatic as you read through all these things. None of this is happening because you and I are really great. None of this is happening because you and I are really effective in what we're doing. It's happening because God is doing it. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, what happened? God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Not partial. He doesn't say, I'll forgive some of them, and then you've got to work it out the rest of your life. He says, I'm going to give it. I'm going to forgive every single one, past, present, future. To emphasize this in verse 14, he says, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away. What did he do? Nailing it to the cross. 
Such a poetic statement. All these things that bring death to us, our sin, the realities of the law that condemn and oppress us. Jesus nailed all of those things to the cross in his death, meaning that when he died for us, he took all those things and vanquished them. He brought about their ruin and their demise uh, so that when we stand before God, we are holy and blameless in his sight. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. As we read that, our minds are drawn to that, that picture of Christ on Calvary's hill as he's hanging dead, dying the, the death of a murderer, even though he was sinless, dying the death of a, re, of, of a rebel, even though he preached reconciliation and repentance and peace. He died a political death in some ways. Because why did the high priests, why did the Pharisees kill him? Because he was threatening their power. Why did the Roman government give in to that request? Because Jesus was threatening their power. And they don't like their power being threatened. And so when Jesus died in that shameful way, yet rose again three days later for our justification, for our resurrection, he put all those things to shame. Said what man tried to do to me did not succeed. But all the powers and authorities, and think about Rome at the time was the power. Everything was Rome. Nobody could stand against Rome. And to say that, that Christ has conquered those things, that he has overcome those things, say that Christ has overcome all things. He's put all things to shame by his cross. And there is a sense where the cross is, is a shameful thing. And the fact that they did the best that they could through torture and, and, and death to stamp down and vanquish Christ, that none of that worked. Christ raises victorious and he puts them to shame. As if Christ is saying, is that the best you can do? And he conquered it all. So friends, um, as we consider Christ, as we consider what he has done for us, as we consider what the power of God is working in our lives, we realize that because of our faith in the power of God, we can live in Christ. We must remain in the truth about who Christ is. We must, uh, and that as a result of that, we have what Christ has. And lastly, we realize that we are most fully alive in Christ Jesus. As when Christ makes us alive, as God makes us alive in Christ, as our debts and our sins and our condemnation are wiped out, there's nothing anymore that is weighing us down towards a, a state of condemnation and eternal death. Instead of eternal death, which is what we deserve, instead we get eternal life. Instead of, at the end of our lives, facing the second death, as Revelation puts it, we instead face eternal life never-ending life. The limits have been taken off of life for you and I. And that's really hard for us to see because we are always living in death's shadow in this earthly place. As relatives and friends die, as we uh, see the deterioration of our own bodies, we're reminded again and again that death is a reality, that death comes for each of us. And sometimes that leads us to despair and, and we fear death and we're afraid of what comes next. 
But in Jesus, we need not fear. Because in Jesus, we've been made fully alive. In Jesus, all the limits of death have been vanquished. And as we pass from this world into the presence of God for all of eternity, we will experience uh, ever-expanding life. Right? Jesus came not to give us less life, not to tamp down our life, but to give us life abundant. And that really, in its fullness, happens in eternity. And that's what this is expressing, is that all these things that separate us from God, all these things that separate us from being in his presence, they've they've been wiped away. Therefore, we are most fully alive when we're in Christ. And as we see Christ as we're in his presence, that's when we're most fully alive. A number of years ago, there's the movie called The Bucket List. Uh, My dad loved that movie. Uh, Even as he was suffering from ALS and dying um, himself, he enjoyed, I think, the comedy of it, but I think he also enjoyed um, the message of it. In that we often live our lives hedging our bets. We live our lives kind of like, you know, death's kind of always in the back of our our heads there. But what happens when these, these older men get a cancer diagnosis in this movie is that they decide basically to, let, I'm going to do all the things that I've been putting off. I've been, I'm going to do all the things that I've been setting aside because I know death is a reality for me. And therefore, I'm going to live fully alive. Um, and in some times in our lives, death is that catalyst because we think there's nothing afterwards. But what this encourages us towards is that Christ can be the catalyst towards that. Christ can free us up to live uh, freely and without fear for the sake of others, loving God, serving those around us, taking risks. Because death is no longer in the equation. And so we can trust in Jesus, and we can uh, embrace the life that he's given to us. So friends, we can have faith in the power of God. We can live in Christ. Uh, We can remain in the truth. We have what Christ has, and we are most fully alive in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love us. Um, Remind us that your power is poured out for sinners like us, that your power is brought to bear on us, Uh, not reluctantly, but willingly, because you adore your children. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of truth, that you remind us of our new life in Christ, that you would remind us of the limits of death and that they've been removed from us. And Lord, show us that when death kind of encroaches on our mind and our living and our lives, remind us in those moments that the power of death has been removed, that we can live without fear, and with joy and expectancy. Give us peace and faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.